Welcome to Dealmaker Diaries, where you hear directly from the dealmakers who you invest with. M&A, real estate syndication, and more. Strap in for unparalleled advice, wisdom, and insight from some of the world's best business minds with Don Thomas and G1C Group. Welcome everyone to episode 40 of Dealmaker Diaries. Today we have with us Mr. Lowell Shepard. Lowell is an author, speaker, and social entrepreneur, a fellow of the Royal Geographic Society, husband, father, a long-distance cyclist, and wannabe sailor. Lowell has spent his entire adult life working with established non-government organizations and in several NGO startups as well. As founder of Hope International Development Agency Japan in Asia Pacific 20 years ago, Lowell has seen the growth of Hope to be in the top 2% of charitable organizations in Japan with the coveted Nintai Certified Tax Deductible status. Lowell has served over the last 20 years as an informal advisor to companies and boards in the area of ethical decision-making and thought leadership with a focus on community legacy. He has dedicated much of his life to social and environmental improvement projects. Today, Lowell is often asked to speak on ethics and philosophy, social enterprise, CSR, sustainability, and subjects related to his various books. He has a proven track record of creating and growing communities around a cause. So let's give Lowell a warm welcome to the show. Let's go. Welcome to the show. How are you today? Great. I'm well, thank you. I'm speaking from Fukuoka, and uh, you're in Texas. Yeah, absolutely. So how's the, um, is it, it looks like it's uh, still a little chilly there, huh? It's been cold the last couple of days, and uh, getting down, in fact, it was snowing. I'm on my boat, and it was snowing yesterday. Uh, so it, it, it's, it was chilly, but warming up, and the sun is shining, and the wind has died down. All right, good. Yes, yeah, about twenty-two degrees here in Austin, so it's oh it's, wow, it's pretty Perfect. pretty warm during the day. So yeah, nice. All right, so Lowell, Lowell um, tell us a little bit about um, social entrepreneurship and how you got started with it. Well, social entrepreneurship is a is a name that people have described me with, and and uh, maybe it, it needs some some definition. My my background has been in the nonprofit world. Mm -hmm. uh, and within that sector, I've been entrepreneurial. Uh, everything from starting Hope, International Development Agency in Japan, uh, to uh, getting involved in community projects. And, uh, and also, uh, I think the word social and social entrepreneurship implies you're doing something to better the world. Of course, businesses do that as well. And that's why our latest initiative, the Never Too Late Academy, is another expression of that social entrepreneurship. Um, my wife, uh, so my background's in the, in the nonprofit, and uh, she is, uh, always says, you, you always achieve all your goals. I wish you had set a goal to be a millionaire. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, so I, so I'm now just dabbling in the for-profit world. Not that that's my goal to, to, to be wealthy necessarily, 
nor is there anything wrong with that. Um, Absolutely but, 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 but there's just been a series of initiatives, startups, projects, some short-term, some long-term. And uh, I think I just, you know, I'm a, I'm a chronic do-gooder. Um, and I want to leave the world a better place than how I found it. That can sound fairly shallow, even as I speak the words, because they've been uh, said so often. But I think, I think it's incumbent upon all of us to leave a legacy of some sort and a footprint. And I'm a firm believer that we are all uniquely placed to do certain things. And in that sense, there's a space that only Lowell can fill. There's a space that only Donald can fill. And we need to leverage our assets, our contacts, our relationships, our life experiences to uh, leave a good good footprint. Okay. And I know you've, um, you've been heading and developing hope in Japan for over two decades now. So how, how and when did that hit your radar? How did they get on your radar and how did you end up with the organization? Well, I first got involved, I first got involved with Hope, which began in Canada back in 1978. And I, I was a volunteer and I was sent to Southeast Asia to work in the refugee camps. And I must confess at that stage, it was largely... This was a great adventure, a great opportunity. Uh, but I really uh, felt at one with the values of hope. Uh, our mission is to help neglected poor become self-reliant. And so when I came back from, from Thailand, I worked with hope in Canada for a few years. And I went to England and I ran an NGO there. And then because of a promise to my wife, we moved to Japan because she was born and raised here. At that point, and that was in 1997, at that point, my colleagues in Canada with Hope International asked me to come back and work for them again. And I said, no, I promised my wife that I would uh, live in Japan with her, but let me see if I can raise some money in Japan. And so I selected the project. It was all volunteer at that point. And, um, and then we had a breakfast meeting at the Hilton in Nagoya. There were key people there, including uh, Robert Roach, uh, who was one of the founders of Shop Japan. Um, there was the general manager of the Hilton Hotel in Nagoya at the time, Timothy Soper, um, and, and a half a dozen others. And I shared the mission of hope. And Robert was the first one to stand up and say, let's, let's start it here. And uh, Timothy Soper said, you can get, get 125 people together. I'll give you the ballroom of the hotel and we'll have a fundraising dinner. Um, in the end, we got over 300 people to the ballroom. And Hope began at that breakfast meeting and then was really launched at that dinner. Um, and then it just gained traction. And then Harry Hill, who had, was in Japan, went back to the States for a time, he came back, and I use him as an example because he's kind of typical of the kind of supporter of hope who once hope is very committed to long-term relationships. We're not very good at fundraising, 
our, our marketing lacks. Uh, it's very grassroots. But the one thing that people notice about Hope is, that, is the outcomes in the field. And, and so we attract solid people. And we attract people for the long term. And, and I've told this story about Harry in public before, so I know he won't mind. But he, he, um, he gave uh, Ichiman at the first dinner. Mm-hmm. And then he gave Juman or $1,000 the next year. And then we went out for lunch together. I, I was going to ask him for $2,500. And he said to me, you know, Lowell, you know, since I've started giving the hope, business karma has been really good. I'm going to give a million yen. And Harry's giving has gone up and up and up. I'm just a steadfast, faithful supporter. And at our 20th anniversary events this year, um, I couldn't attend the Nagoya dinner because I was in my boat elsewhere in Japan. So I sent a video message. And as I ponder the 20 years of raising support in Japan for our projects overseas, the word faithfulness comes to me, that there's people who just joined and been faithful over the years. Um, and, you know, Mike Alphonse, another one, uh, I was introduced to him by Robert. Robert phoned Mike up and said, you need to meet uh, Lowell Shepard. He, he wants to talk to you about hope. I went, I talked to him about hope. I didn't ask for any money. Mike phoned Robert afterwards and said, that guy didn't ask me for any money. Um, <laughs> But, but Mike gave the next time we met, and he's both Harry and Mike are on the board of Hope to this day. So, you know, Harry's often talks about Hope is people to people. And it's true that people need people. And a little bit of giving at our end has dramatic effects on the neglected poor. And I've spent considerable time in the field. I know many of our beneficiaries. I think of Cambodia, particularly where we, we provide, we install wells and create well user groups. And we're dealing with families who are less than $150 a year. If you were to actually monetize everything that they generate for themselves. Um, but within a year of getting a well, they're now up over $1,000 a year in cash income. You know, they have better health. They have more time. And, they, and they're able now to create surplus food to their needs, which they sell at the market. And then those families start helping other families. So hope, hope, is, um, hope is so gratifying. Because it's not about the organization. It's just about connecting people who have the means to help those who don't have the means acquire the means to help others. Um, so it, it's, it's in my heart, hope, and always will be. Yeah, and, and to go back to your point, you mentioned um, a lot of the leadership team is, are solid people, and I've met the majority of them. Um, how important was it to build a good leadership team for the organization here? And what qualities did you look for in the people you thought were good fits for hope? 
Yeah, and no, it's it's interesting you use the term leadership team because they are they're on the board, but I like can think of many others too that aren't necessarily in a place of leadership. I think what I what I've always looked for and I've told the staff that we eventually hired to raise funds as well is we're not trying to persuade anybody to give. We're trying to find the people who want to give. Um, so we're looking for people who get it, uh, who say, yeah, this is about helping others get a foot up so they can become self-determining. And it doesn't cost us much to do that. So, you know, we, we've played the game sometimes with sponsors, um, selling tables to corporate marketing budgets, etc., And, we won't turn those down, but in, invariably, that kind of giving is very demanding because mm. you have to give so much back. Uh, whereas the enlightened giver, the enlightened donor, the enlightened leader um, gives out of trust. And of course, there's accountability, there's paperwork, there's audits, there's financial statements, but they're not looking to get their name up in lights. They are just wanting to know that their money is being used uh, effectively to help others. And, and so, you know, I can think of our board members, but I can think of dozens and dozens of others who've just given faithfully over the years. And when the tsunami happened in 2011, immediately hope was being asked to, to help. And, and my initial response in the first few hours was, we can't help we don't have the means and it's outside our mandate and if we divert any funds we're going to create more victims in other countries who are not getting the support and it was harry hill who within 24 hours of the earthquake phoned me up and he said lowell you can't use that as an excuse that this is outside our mandate because we are all outside our mandate in Japan at the moment. So he said, I've just come from an Oaklawn marketing board meeting. Oh, my video went off short, uh, briefly there. I just went, um, Harry said, I just come from an Oaklawn marketing board meeting. And on Monday, we're depositing a million dollars in the Hope's account. Oh, wow. So, so that you can get up to Tohoku help people within the hope value system and protocols. And we're also giving you that million dollars so that if you see a drop in giving for the overseas projects, you can make up the difference out of our funds. And then he said, and not only is the company giving, but the three principals, Harry Hill, Robert Roach, and uh, Nakamura-san are going to between them give another half a million dollars. And then he said, and also we're challenging all of our suppliers to donate to Hope 1% of what we spent last year on their product. So altogether, it came to about $2.5 million. And it allowed us to get up to to Tohoku. (coughs) And and so all all that to say this, Donald, it comes back to this issue of trust. Who are we looking for? We're looking for people who get it 
and they have a high level of trust. And I bumped into Robert Roach a year later at the Nagoya Walkathon, and I, I just said, Robert, thank you. You've enabled us to help 20 communities and 70 startups and restarts, getting people back on their feet economically. And he said to me, oh, we did the easy part. You did the hard part, spending the money wisely. And I laughed. I said, oh, thank you. And then I was walking away. Then I, I thought, no, I'm not going to leave it at that. I, I want, I, so I called Robert back. I said, Robert, you know what? I have no idea how easy it is to give away a billion dollars. Um, yeah. I wish I had that experience, but I have no idea. But I do know that it's, it's not easy to spend money wisely where you're genuinely helping people and you're not just creating good copy for your newsletter or for, or for your website. And those things can be, can be contradictory. They can conflict with each other at times. So long answer to your question, we're looking for people who get it, who have trust that are in it, in it for the long term. Yeah, to add to your point about um, spending money wisely, uh, I would agree, especially when there's large sums of it, right? It seems like the more you have, the harder it is to spend it wisely. So, and that's one of the things I love about Hope. I mean, it's, they do spend their money wisely, the board, they don't take a salary, over 90% of what's what's raised goes to the projects that are that are out in the field. So that I mean, I think that's one of the things that makes it such an attractive organization. And that's why I'm raising for it here in Austin for the dinner I'm doing in May. So that's one of the same Thank things. you. So kudos for that. Thank you. All right, Lowell. So let's um, let's switch gears a little and talk about a, talk a little bit about um, Navigate 22. So can you tell us a little bit about that and what the mission is behind that? Okay, well, I think uh, what, so I need to tell you that um, when I turned 64, uh, at my birthday, it's in March, I'm 66 now, but two months before my birthday, I, I sent out an invitation for a birthday party. And I, and I had a birthday party in Nagoya and a birthday party in Tokyo. And I, in the announcement, I said, come and celebrate my 64th birthday. I have three announcements to make. And, uh, and people were kind of, you know, wondering what I was going to say. And there's a lot of, you know, bantering around as to what were the three announcements. But the three announcements were these. Number one, it was time for somebody else to take on the leadership of hope in Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I needed somebody, we needed somebody with more proficient Japanese and maybe another skill set. And so we were, I announced that I was stepping down as executive director and we were going to look for somebody to take my place. Announcement number one. Announcement number two is that I was going to return to speaking and writing uh, and going to start a consultancy called Navigate 22. And it would be in the area of of ethics and CSR and social entrepreneurship, coaching, personal mission statements, etc. And that thirdly, um, I was going to seek to realize a lifelong dream, and that is to get a sailboat, learn how to sail, and sail across the Pacific Ocean solo, my uh, through the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. 
and witness what we're doing to the oceans and highlight the importance of, of, of the oceans. So all of that I'd planned on would happen sometime in 2020. Um, in fact, we found that we found Jeff a year ahead of schedule. Mm. And so I, was, I stepped away from hope. So suddenly everything was moved up ahead of uh, what I thought would be the schedule because we found a, a sterling chap to take my place being executive director of Hope International. Um, and I found a boat a year earlier, but also um, uh, COVID-19 came. Mm, yeah. And it wasn't the time to start a business. So um, I did, I picked up a couple of consultancies and we did some seminars and on um, personal mission statements, but navigate 22 was just meant to be a, uh, a an, an umbrella and, and it, to allow me to get back into speaking and writing again. I used to write books for a living. What is what that has morphed into is the Never Too Late Academy, um, and Harry Hill and Mike Alfond are two of my investors in that, um, and uh, along with two other gentlemen, and we're we're basically with my Pacific Solo Initiative and my small but growing YouTube channel, I'm basically attracting people like me who are seeking, who, who, who are a bit older in life, but still have some unrealized dreams. And they've been writing me, asking for advice, et cetera, et cetera. And so we've created a, a, an academy to help others also realize their dreams. And we've just launched our third course called How to Fund Your Dreams, where I'm bringing my experience in getting sponsors and crowdfunding, et cetera, to pay for this high stake dream. And we're, we're talking about high stake dreams, dreams that have a high level of risk to them, either physically or financially. Um, so okay, that's what um, that. So quick question is that, so these are courses that people can sign up and get, um, get advisement through you. Yes. There's some free courses. There's a lot of free content, but it's also um, there. There are video courses with accompanying PDFs, worksheets, okay. etc. And the 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 name "Never Too Late" came from my um, a book I wrote a few years ago called "Never Too Late," mm -hmm. and that book went into Russian, Portuguese, and French as well. And in that book, I give ten tips to change the course of your life. That book uh, has become my manual. I'm just getting a copy. That that's the book there, okay. And uh, it's become my manual for realizing my dream. And now it seems like I'm attracting a lot of people who feel inspired. And so I want to just share with them what I've done. I'm not an expert on dream realization, but I, um, I I'm in the midst of pursuing this high stake dream, and just want to share what I've learned. But also Mike Elfond has contributed. He's one of the guest instructors. Harry Hill is a guest 
instructor uh, because they've been my advisors as well mm. to the Pacific Solo Challenge. And I think that name is perfect, right? Because I think a lot of times, so often we get caught up in life, right? With just taking care of life that we we reach 50 or 60 and say, hey, I, 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 I gave up on my dreams. I was working this nine to five, but and now it's too late. So I think that's the, that's the perfect that's the perfect name and catchphrase for that. So, and we're tracking some younger people now too. And uh, think of one particular chap called Joshua, who's just done a major life shift. And uh, he said, uh, "I want you to do a course called It's Never Too Late to Start Early." And I thought, mm-hmm. okay, that's that's an interesting one. But I also do other courses on. Uh, I've written books on on parenting boys. Uh, that's called Boys Becoming Men. So I'll likely do something that's never too late to raise a boy or it's never too late to become a man. Uh, there is, I, I, I observed a problem uh, back in the 80s where, where many boys weren't growing up in, in the sense that you know, our, even our wives and our girlfriends are enablers because they talk about Boys will be boys, boys with their toys. And there's all, and, and that in Western culture, particularly, there's not a defining moment as there is in other cultures where a boy passes over into manhood and, and received into manhood. Um, and even the term adolescent is a new term created just over 100 years ago by an anthropologist trying to describe this this growing period of time where where human being is neither a child or an adult there never used to be a period of time it used to be one or the other and then american marketeers post-war invented the word teenager which made this period even longer so i as i looked at my own life and me raising my boys, I pondered the absence of a puberty rite of passage and how many, you know, when is it that a boy becomes a man? Is it, is it, uh, and I don't want to be, I'm not meaning to be crude in any of these, but when he has his first sexual appetite, Mm -hmm. is it when he graduates from high school? Is it when he loses his virginity? Is it when he gets his driver's license, goes to college, gets his first job, gets married? There's not a defining moment. And so many men have never had another man say, welcome, you're one of us. And Nelson Mandela's book kind of informed me of this problem because he talked about his rite of passage. And for in his tribe, it was circumcision. And I'm not advocating uh, mutilation. But for six weeks, up, up until circumcision school at age 15, the boys in the tribe only hung around with women and other boys. Hmm. And the men had their nightly campfire sessions. And the boys weren't allowed to participate in that. Then they're sent across the river. And he was with a half a dozen other guys, other boys, who, who for s- six weeks were, in, were in, 
in manhood school for four weeks. They were taught. This is what it means to be a man. Then at the end of the fourth week, they were circumcised. And then they took, and he's very graphic in his book, took the donut of skin, pinned it to a blanket, and they all had to go off separate ways to an isolated place for two weeks to heal and then to come back. And I should say that there's that very powerful moment when Nelson Mandela said when he was sliced by an old man with a machete, at that point you're supposed to yell, I'm now a man. And his was more of a, of a whimper because of the pain. <laughs> but the key is this. When they came back, they then were given all their childhood belongings clothes. They burned them in a, in a fire along with the blanket and the foreskin. They were clothed with new clothes. They crossed the river. And from that point on, they could sit around the fire and they could express opinions. The opinions were not necessarily agreed with, but they had a right to speak. So that made me think, you know, there's no, when is that in Western mm -hmm. culture? So I wrote a book about boys becoming men. So they'll likely be one of the courses as well. So I, I kind of got sidetracked there. So the plan with Never Too Late Academy is it's not just going to be me in the future. It's other instructors as well. And okay. it's, we, it's kind of like chicken soup for the soul brands. It may touch on a lot of different topics of life. But for now, it's focusing on realizing high-stake dreams. Okay. And, and Lowell, just in case some of the listeners want to know, where can they find your book? Is it on Amazon or how, how can they get that? Uh, this book is now out of print. The only place really is to come to Never Too Late Academy and, and sign up for a course or something and they get one. Uh, my, my other books are on Amazon. In fact, this one may be on Amazon still. Uh, essentially, I don't know about the other languages, but if they look up my name on Amazon, they'll see, or just write Never Too Late Academy. And I'm happy to, to give away copies of the book. Uh, to students. Okay, and Never Too Late Academy is at nevertoolateacademy.com? Yes. Okay. All right, excellent. All right, so before we let you go, I want to put you through the lightning round so we can um, find out about a little bit more about what makes you tick. Lightning round, first question. So what book or books have greatly influenced your life? Well, there are so many. I've already referred to one, okay. uh, Nelson Mandela's autobiography. Uh, fascinating story. Uh, but I read quite, quite broadly. Um, I have to say I start off uh, my life as a minister, so the Bible, of course, and, and the teachings of Christ. Um, I've got, uh, I'm kind of looking, uh, Jane Goodall's book, uh, has influenced me. Um, but I think, you know, because I was trained as a theologian, probably um, a book that really impressed upon me was a Japanese theologian called Kosuke Koyama, who I corresponded with in his later years of life. And he wrote a book called The Three Mile Per Hour God. 
Mm-hmm. And it was a meditations and reflections of how, and I'm not, I'm not meaning to, uh, you know, persuade anybody on a faith issue, but the, his basic point was God moves at the speed of love and that's walking speed. And, and so it taught me about what love is. Love, love is walking at the pace of others. And that really helped me in my work with hope that, that with hope, with, with hope, power, money is power. Whatever, whatever the money flow is, there's a perceived power that goes with it, which makes the recipients feel subservient. And so we have to be very careful in the giving of money that we truly give it altruistically with as few strings attached as possible. And so his book, Three Mile Per Hour God, helped me a lot of how do you treat people with respect and dignity. Okay. And just to add to your point about um, when you're giving that money and the idea of subservient, I mean, I think another good thing about what hope does, it allows them to, allows them tools to be self-sustaining. So you're not just giving them money and they're looking for that money again next year or five years. I mean, you're giving them tools like the wells where they can sustain themselves and, and build a community around that. So, I mean, I think that's another good thing that hope does. Yeah, yeah, it, it, yeah we mustn't create dependence exactly. on the support. We're simply giving them a leg up so they can be self-reliant. Exactly. All right, excellent. All right, so Lowell, how has a failure or perceived failure actually allowed you a greater success later? Well, the lessons learned. I mean, it's a fairly obvious thing to say. We learn from every failure. And I think a, a, a companion emotion to failure is fear. And I believe that fear is not the enemy. Failure is not the enemy. Uh, the, the risk, the fear of failing is actually a, a constant companion with whom we have to work out our relationship with. Uh, it's a doorway, not a wall. Um, and so, so I think we, we have to live with, live with risk. And if we fail, there's always a silver lining. And usually that's something we learn. Absolutely. Okay, excellent. And if you could have a billboard, Lowell, anywhere with anything on it, what would it say? Well, I guess my mantra right now is it's never too late. <laughs> uh, you Perfect. know, it's... Uh, it, you know, don't don't live with regrets and you know even some of our dreams can be so frightening but there can come a time in our life when it's right to reach out for them and so sailing a boat across an ocean um, i've always been scared of doing that but now the fear of not doing it is greater than the fear of doing it so you know if don't don't die with with regrets. Uh, reach out and realize your dream. 
Okay. And now, so never, it's never too late. Never too <laughs> is late. Is the billboard. <laughs> okay. And, and you mentioned um, meditation before. Do you meditate? Yeah, I think it's, I don't meditate uh, in, a, in a highly disciplined way. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I developed some practices early on in my adult life which remain, which kind of just built in uh, to, to my, uh, it's not even a routine, um, but I believe in be being reflective. And so I spend times every day just reflecting on themes and topics. And it's important to quieten the soul mm -hmm. and listen to the nuances okay yes and i asked that so at, at least at least the next question and it might be repetitious but what what is a habit or routine that you love uh my routine is i have for some time and of course my days are so varied now and so many surprises as you as you've seen uh, this morning on this call uh, but I've never been one to take days off and, and I struggle with holidays. What I try to do is divide every day into thirds and make sure that every day, a third of the day is spent for personal renewal and recreation. It could be fitness, it could be out riding my bicycle. Um, but, but that's a general approach I take to every day in thirds and, and, uh, to make sure I'm, I'm leading a, a balanced life. Okay. How many hours do you sleep a night, Lowell? Uh, no matter what time I go to bed, I'm up at five o'clock, okay. uh, but ideally I need about six or seven hours. Okay. And do, do you have a favorite place you like to go to when you want to think big? Well, for me now, that's my boat. Okay. Um, you know, I'm on my own in the boat. It's a, it's a dream come true. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, sailing all around Japan. Um, I've cycled all around Japan before. So it used to be my bicycle set where I go out for a hundred kilometer bike ride 130 kilometer bike ride and those were always times of meditation reflection cadence um but now now it's sailing it's there's something about being on the water that calibrates you in a different way um i even have i have friends two of them particularly both very successful entrepreneurs neither in japan and they both got into boats and they said that when they're in the water, their, their ODD gets calmed down a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, they, they, they lose that sense of franticness and frenzy. And it gives them time just to settle and, and to think. So, so this boat is my sanctuary. Okay. It's yeah, that's a, a beautiful boat. Yeah, you showed me around it's a sacred the place. It's a mess at the moment because it's kind of a workshop. <laughs> okay, and um, 
I mean, I know you know better than anybody. There's so many hours in a day and you have so many things pulling you in different directions. So what have you become better at saying no to? Um, let me answer it in a slightly different way is that most of my life I've been in the service of others mm. and I still am. I'm on the board of hope and both informally and formally, my life is predisposed that way. However, I I've said to my family many times that what I'm doing now with Pacific Solo is exceedingly selfish of me. And I realize that. Mm. So, so I, so I, I'm now saying no to taking on more responsibilities elsewhere because I'm so focused on this mission. I'm having to put other things out. That's even spending time with my family. Um, and that, that's a hard choice for me. But I also know they're 100% behind me as well. So, um, and, and so that, that's kind of now, but also even raising money for hope, I learned how to say no to certain donations mm. because they were coming with strings attached. They're coming from people who didn't get it. Mm. And, and they were high maintenance donations. So I learned that early on, and it's kind of coming full circle to the start of our conversation, is is say yes to the right people and no to those who don't get it. Okay. All right, excellent. All right, and last one. This one is, goes kind of deep, so it might kind of throw you off, but what important truth do very few people agree with you on? Wow. I don't think I've ever been asked that question, and it it depends on which particular part of my social network I may put myself in. So um, I'm pretty inclusive in terms of diverse views, mm -hmm. uh, people who disagree with me, and both politically, uh, faith-wise, and even tactics. So... There's always, there'll always be a segment of my friendship circle who don't agree with me mm. and, and disagree with me. And I've almost, almost had a couple times friends walk away because they, we had a discussion and they took an opposing view and they, they wanted to cut me off. And I think of, you know, one friend, particularly in Canada and, who rode his bike across Cambodia with me and he brought a group of cyclists. We raised about $30,000 for wells in Cambodia. And we started to have some deep conversations about things on that bicycle trip. And then he kind of got upset with me and I, and then he went back to Canada and finally I phoned him up and I said, Andrew, you know, I know we had a disagreement, but we're friends. Yeah. And I just want you to know, I'll never walk away from you. If, if you need distance, that's fine. And he said, okay, okay. Then 
that was on a Thursday night, the Friday, uh, I because I'd phoned him when I was in Canada. I was due to fly back the next day to Japan. And he said, I want to come and see you before you go to the airport. He says, I'll drive you to the airport. He says, okay. So he drove over in his Porsche and uh, we had breakfast and he wept. And he said, you are my friend. And I'm sorry I walked away from you. I will never do that again. So that's important to me that that I don't agree with everybody. I have my, um, not adversaries, they're friends, but they struggle with some things. Mm-hmm. I, have, I have fellow ministers from early on who feel like they feel I've lost the faith uh, because of my own faith journey. And that's probably the biggest group where some have actually shun me because I'm no longer like them. They've never moved on, and that's fine. They they have a strong sense of belief. Um, but, uh, but I believe that relationships should be enduring. And so I grieve the loss of those friendships, uh, but I'm very grateful for those who kept walking with me. You know, some John Wesley said, that faith should be a never-ending adventure. We're always, we're, it's always reaching to the mystery of the unknown and grasping more truth, more revelation, more illumination. All right, In fact, let good. me just close. Let me just close with with an illustration. Uh, 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 a chap shared with me once. Leslie Newbig and nearly blind. And I invited him to come and speak to our staff. And he was taught, this was in England. And he used to be Bishop of India, an intellectual, but a very unpretentious man. And he said that faith journey is like climbing a rock face. If you have four firm holds, you're secure, but you'll never advance up the mountain. At some point, you have to let go of something that's secure, reach into the mystery Mm. of something higher. Sometimes you have to let go of two points of contact. Sometimes you have to let go of three. And then he cited Tom Cruise in the beginning of one of his Mission Impossible movies, who's on a rock face, and he has to spring, letting go of all four holds Mm. to get to a higher place. And I think that really impacted me that yeah i you know in the words of you too i still haven't found what i'm looking for uh but that's uh that sense of adventure draws us forward all right well said very well said all right Laura. so thanks so much for joining us today i really appreciate your time and um wisdom with us um before we hop off, if anybody wants to get in touch with you um, about learn learn um, Never Too Late Academy, learn more about you, collaborate with you, what's the best way for them to uh, reach out to you? They can write me at the Never Too Late Academy. Just go to the website and um, drop a note, or my email address is lowell at navigate22.com. 
And they can also follow me on my sailing adventures on my YouTube channel, which is called Pacific Solo. Okay, and uh, and the listeners, they can um, see both of those streaming right below the screen. So yeah, they'll have that for you. Okay, wonderful. All right, great, Lowell. So again, thanks for joining us. You have a nice day and a nice weekend as well. Take care. Thanks, Donald, and apologies again for the interruptions. Oh, no worries. No worries. There you have it, guys. Another episode of Dealmaker Diaries in the books. If you enjoy and or find value in what we're doing, please do leave us a nice review. It goes a long way in keeping the show moving in the right direction. For you investors, if you're looking for places to put your hard-earned capital to work, head on over to our website, g1cgrp.com, and sign up for our investor list to be informed of the different projects we're raising capital for that will provide you with the cash flow your investments so much deserves.